those kids who remain, all of you, kids of all ages, um, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10 and 11. Revelation chapter 10 and 11. I always struggle uh, on Sunday mornings when I know it's an unusual type of teaching. It's an unusual passage. And that the best way to kind of explicate, explain what the passage is doesn't fit in kind of the typical type of sermon. You know, nice introduction, um, three points or four or ten in some cases in, in, our, in my past here. Um, and, uh, and then a nice kind of conclusion at the end. And... I always struggle because I go, I, I, sometimes I want to break that kind of training in that mold. And then I always feel like I need to come and explain that to all of you. But then as I look at your faces, I'm, I'm looking at, at all of you and you're like, we know who you are. We know how you do this. You don't need to explain it to us. And so, um, but yet I do anyway. Uh, this morning, I, I want to um, begin kind of in an unusual way. It's more of kind of like a prayer request slash news report update on what is happening in the church in the world and then lead into this passage and uh, teach this passage in, in an unusual way than I typically do. But in the last year, within the last year, uh, the Chinese communist government has really been cracking down on control on control of every aspect of Chinese life, but in particular in control over um, the religions there and in particular Christianity. They have been targeting um, megachurches. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with how things work in China. In China, they have uh, an official state-approved, you know, seal of approval churches. But there are underground churches or house churches that uh, are unregistered and in that sense kind of illegal. They've been kind of allowed to happen and the church, the Chinese government knows that they, they exist, but they're, they're believers who are getting together in house churches and worshiping and they're doing so kind of illegally. Well, um, within the last year, the Chinese government has really been cracking down on these. Within uh, the last year, for example, many of you may have heard this, there's a large Chinese megachurch that was seized by the government and they used bulldozers and equipment and dynamite to blow the church building up because they just need to have control over what happens in the church. Soon after that, the Chinese president, um, Xi Jinping, worked to change the constitution to abolish term limits. So basically making, as one commentator called him, an emperor for life. Um, which is undoing several decades of, of work there in, um, in terms of how the government was run. And immediately after that, uh, they, the government started to censure any kind of disagreement with it or about it. They removed the phrase, I disagree, from uh, the, the uh, search engines that people were allowed to use. You've probably heard that Google has entered into an agreement with the Chinese government to make a specific search engine that allows the government to dictate what things are able to be searched and what aren't. Uh, Google, for a period of time, had refused 
to do those sorts of things, and now they're relenting and they're making, I think it's called Dragonfly. Yeah, okay, Dragonfly. It's an internet search app, app that the government controls. So they're working to control every aspect of people's life, and in particular Christianity in China. And then uh, several months ago, you may have heard that the, the Vatican has now entered into an agreement with the Chinese Communist Party. And what this uh, agreement entailed was that the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party had appointed seven bishops over the church, the Catholic church in the Catholic diocese in China. The, the government appointed this apart from the Vatican's approval in the process. And so up to that point, the Vatican didn't recognize this, but then the Vatican in a move to try and kind of, you know, get into good uh, arrangement with the Chinese government said, okay, meaning we will approve those seven. So the Catholic church, nowhere else in history, nowhere else have they ever done this. They've allowed a, a secular and officially atheistic government to pick bishops over their own churches. It's just kind of interesting what is what is happening. Um, the the uh, church, the underground churches are also starting to feel this this kind of pressure from the Chinese uh, Communist Party. And it's uh, as one commentator, Al Mohler, described what is happening. They, they actually are going into to house churches. They're arresting pastors. They're arresting parishioners. Um, they, they agree to, to let them continue. The Chinese Communist Party is agreeing to let um, churches continue to operate if only they will allow the government to put in surveillance equipment like video cameras just to see who's coming and going and to see what's going on there. They said, you, we'll, we'll let you keep doing what you're doing. We just need to know what you're doing. We need to, to watch this. The churches that refuse then are the ones that are seized, taken away. Their promotional materials uh, are, are taken away. And uh, as, I, as I was starting to say, Al Mohler says, this sounds almost like an absolute chapter out of George Orwell's novel, 1984. And that this is not only Big Brother, this is Big Brother not even trying to hide the fact that he is Big Brother. And so it, it makes sense why the, the Chinese communist government would, would do this because they see Christianity as a threat. Well, on this front, they're right. Christianity is a threat to any totalitarian regime, any kind of worldly kingdom, any kind of worldly system that sets itself up against the Lord and against his anointed. This past week, you may have heard about Pastor uh, Wang Yi. How many of you, show of your hands, have, have heard of this Pastor Wang Yi? Just, oh, a couple of you, okay. Wang, uh, Wang Yi is a pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China. There's a picture of him from several years ago. He's the one, second from the right, um, with uh, President George W. Bush on a religious liberties, um, uh, I think it was a religious liberty and religious freedom uh, sort of event at the White House. And there he is in the right-hand picture uh, as he is being arrested. He's one of China's most prominent pastors um, and a church movement leader. And he knew what was happening 
with everything that I kind of outlined for you about what has been taking place in the last 10 or 11 months. And he could see kind of the crackdown on religious freedom that was happening. And so he wrote a, a, a declaration or a letter in the case that he happened to be captured and arrested or disappeared for more than 48 hours. Uh, he wanted this letter to be released and to be released to, to his church and to, to those around him. And so what I would like to do this morning, and, and I ask your, your patience to kind of bear with me as I read this, but I would like to read for you this letter. And we want to give thanks to um, the um, China Partnership for their work in, in translating this and putting this out. And this is my declaration of faithful disobedience from Pastor Wang Yi of Early Rain Covenant Church, dated December 12, 2018. Okay. On the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God disposes kings and he raises up kings. And this is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. As a pastor of a Christian church, I have my own understanding and views based on the Bible about what righteous order and good government is. At the same time, I have filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime at the wickedness of their depriving people of their freedoms of religion and of conscience. But changing social and political institutions is not the mission I have been called to. And it is not the goal for which God has given his people his gospel. For all hideous realities, unrighteous politics, and arbitrary laws manifest the cross of Jesus Christ. And I think here he means to manifest the need of the cross of Jesus Christ. The only means by which every Chinese person must be saved. They also manifest the fact that the true hope and a perfect society will never be found in the transformation of any earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. As a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short and God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about a heavenly and eternal life. This is also the pastor pastoral calling that I have received. For this reason, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As, God's, as the Lord's servant John Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people. The goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward him. For this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. At the same time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked, unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce 
this wickedness openly and severely. The call that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey the human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. But this does not mean that my personal disobedience and the disobedience of the church is in any sense, quote, fighting for our rights or political activism in the form of civil disobedience, because I do not have the intention of changing any institutions or laws of China. As a pastor, the only thing I care about is the disruption of man's sinful nature by this faithful disobedience and the testimony it bears for the cross of Christ. As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires us to great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. For the mission of the church is only to be the church and not to become a part of any secular institution. From a negative perspective, the church must separate itself from the world and keep itself from being institutionalized by the world. From a positive perspective, all the acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that in all matters relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. For this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways we testify to another world and to another glorious king. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans, for his plans are always benevolent and good. Precisely because none of my words and actions are directed towards seeking and hoping for societal and political transformation, I have no fear of any social or political power. For the Bible teaches us that God establishes governmental authorities in order to terrorize evildoers, not to terrorize doers of good. If believers in Jesus do no wrong, then they should not be afraid of dark powers Even though I am weak, I firmly believe this is the promise of the gospel. It is what I've devoted all of my energy to. It is the good news that I am spreading throughout Chinese society. I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at the church that is no longer afraid of it. If I am imprisoned... For a long or short period of time, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and of my my Savior, I very joyfully willing, I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. But I know that only when I renounce all the wickedness of this persecution against the church and use peaceful means to disobey, will I truly be able to help the souls of the authorities and law enforcement. I hope God uses me 
by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is a higher authority than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain. A freedom that fills the church of a crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Moreover, I must point out that persecution against the Lord's church and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and most horrendous evil of Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians. It is also a sin against all non-Christians. For the government is brutally and ruthlessly threatening them and hindering them from coming to Jesus. There is no greater wickedness in the world than this. If this regime is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. For on earth, there has only ever been a thousand year church. There has never been a thousand year government. There's only eternal faith. There is no eternal earthly power. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me. That he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children. Ruin my reputation. Destroy my family and my life. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. And no one can raise me from the dead. And so respectable officers stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands for why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I. Jesus is the Christ, son of the living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth yesterday, today and forever. I am his servant and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God. And I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's law. Pastor Wang Yi. I, I don't know Pastor Wang Yi. I wish I did. I wish I, I wish I could meet this guy. And I pray for him. And I pray for what he is enduring. It was a week ago. When we were gathered here, that he was arrested. And I think I would really like, I would like to sit down with this guy and have coffee or tea or whatever. But what I really appreciate about Pastor Wang Yi is that he gets what these passages in Revelation are all about. The passages that we're going to look at today and that we looked at last week. The seven trumpets. The pouring out of God's judgment on the earth in the present church age in various uh, pictured in various ways, but 
poured out so that people might turn in repentance. And he knows, he understands the passage that we're going to look at today. And so this is where we turn now to Revelation chapter 10 and chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 10, you have basically an interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And you have the appearance of an angel with a little scroll. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillar of fire. And he had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So here's another cycle of sevens. You know, so we saw the Jesus speaking to the seven churches. Then you had the seven seals on the scroll in the hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. Then you've had the seven trumpets. And I think what you had here was the beginning of the, the uh, a cycle of seven thunders. But it's, this is speculation, but it's almost like the Lord said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. We wiped out a quarter of the grass and the water and all of these, those things when the seals were open and a third of things were broken down. You would kind of assume that he means, well, next what I was going to do is continue to pour out some more things and destroy half of the earth in the hopes that people would repent. And it's almost like he'd changed his course and goes, we're not going to send the seven thunders. So, uh, John, you heard it, but seal that up. What you have here in chapter 10 is a commissioning of John as a prophet or a recommissioning of John as a prophet. And he's offered this scroll that's in the hand of the angel, the little scroll. And this is very reminiscent. If you're familiar with the first couple chapters of Ezekiel, the same thing happens with Ezekiel. He is told to take this scroll and is now told to go and prophesy to the nations. John has the same thing happen here in in verse uh, verse eight. Then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told. You must prophesy again. You must again prophesy about the word there could be over. You must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings or over many peoples, nations, languages and kings. So John is recommissioned here as a prophet. That's kind of the opening scene that leads us to chapter 11. And so in chapter 11 will be the for, the, the focus of of our teaching this morning. And there's two questions that I want us to begin with to think about. And then we're going to look at each one of these questions and hopefully give an answer to these questions and then learn what that means for us. In verses one and two, we're we're uh, introduced to or told uh, John is told to measure the temple of God. Okay, that's happens in verses one and two. So the first question is, what is the temple of God? And then in chapter three, you have this appearance of my two witnesses. And that spans through the uh, the remaining verses down to verse 13 of chapter 11. So this morning, we're going to look at 
uh, those two questions. What is the temple of God? And who are the two witnesses? So we begin. What's the first one? What is the temple of God? Well, having just been recommissioned as a prophet in the vein of Ezekiel by being given a scroll and told to eat it. Now that scroll is kind of taking in the message of God and that it is a beautiful message. It's a sweet message of salvation, but it's also bitter in that it brings judgment to those who reject it. Likewise, uh, just as that kind of uh, situation with Ezekiel then kind of forms the pattern here for John, also like Ezekiel, John is told to take a measuring rod and go measure a temple. Okay, so chapter 40 through 48 of Ezekiel Ezekiel goes into great detail where he sees this temple and is told with a measuring rod to go in and measure this temple. And this is what is happening in these first two verses. The question that we need to ask here is what is it that he, John sees? What is this temple? There's two main interpretations. There, there's five, but we're, there's two main ones. The first main interpretation of th this temple, what it is, is that it's a literal physical temple that is going to be rebuilt at the end time. It's a literal future restored temple in the literal holy city of Jerusalem. And that the worshipers there are remnant believing ethnic Jews, uh, that the measuring of this temple indicates that they will be physically protected by God and that that is I think that is true. When you see everywhere in the Old Testament, there's a measuring of something. It usually means that God has like, he, he knows the dimensions. He, he's protecting this. And so the unbelieving Jews then are become like the outer court that we're going to read here in a moment. And um, they will, the godless Gentiles then will persecute those who are in this, this outer court. Okay, so there's there's a kind of a futuristic reading of this. There's some who see who take this as a literal physical temple, um, but they don't see it as something that's in the future. They see it as it's basically happened in the past back 20 years or so prior to when John sees this, when the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple was actually destroyed by the Romans. And so they kind of say, hey, maybe this is what this is referring to. Uh, so now I'm going to read it and then I'm going to give you what I think is a better explanation for this and um, the second main interpretation. So he, let me read these for you. Verses one and two of chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So we looked at the literal and physical temple in the future. I think that it's more helpful to look at this as this is a parable. What we're going to see here is a parable and it's going to continue as a parable in the, the rest of this passage, the rest of chapter 11. That this would understand that temple in a figurative sense and what the temple represents. Temples represented... The dwelling place of God on earth. Okay? So this would understand that temple as being the temple of God as being the, out, the, uh, the dwelling place of God on earth. The outer court kind of being the physical expression of it. 
that would be susceptible to harm. Okay? And so let me, let me expand on what I mean, why we need to see this as the temple of God is being figurative. Okay? It largely is based on the idea that everywhere else in the New Testament, you see this phrase temple of God used. It is used figuratively and it is used of the church on earth. And if I could be a little bit more precise, just, uh, just a little more specific, the real true heavenly temple is now Jesus Christ, the Lord God and Jesus Christ. Okay. And all who are in Christ then by faith in Christ are now the temple of God on earth. Okay, so now I'm going to walk you through some passages, and we've got numerous slides here. First, Jesus claimed that his body was the true, real temple. Okay, remember the time when Jesus is overturning the money changers in the temple. And the Jews came to him, and they said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews says, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Now remember, he's in the temple, Herod's temple in Jerusalem. He goes, it's taken 46 years for them to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? And then notice what John says. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. This earthly temple that in whose court he was in. And in, in, in where he was overturning the money changers, that is the copy, the shadow. Jesus was saying, I'm the real one. And tear it down and rebuild it in three days. He's talking about when you're going to crucify me and I will be raised in three days. This whole phrase, temple of God, is used in Matthew chapter 26. Because that incident then becomes one of the main pieces of evidence at Jesus' trial. Matthew 26, the chief priests... The whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus, false testimony in Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Temple of God. This is adding to the, the point that Jesus made when he was overturning the money changers. By the way, notice this. I didn't notice this earlier, but it, it totally makes sense. How many witnesses came forward? Two. That's interesting. That's going to that's gonna be key. Two witnesses. Okay. Um, so this is the, the only time that the temple of God is used to describe the physical architectural one is the one, that Jesus, the one that's going to be destroyed and that Jesus himself is going to replace. Jesus is the heavenly temple of God. Am I losing you here? Hopefully not, because okay, this is key to understanding what, what's happening in Revelation. Jesus ascends into heaven, right? The new heavens and the new earth, as is described in Revelation 21, what do we see? John is looking around this glorious city, this new Jerusalem, and it's kind of like, wow, this is awesome. And Jerusalem was the centerpiece of where the Jews were to worship, where the temple, the Ark of the Covenant is. Looking around, I don't see a temple. Where's the temple? What does it say? And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its, its light and its light. Its lamp is the lamb. 
So in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the heavenly temple, there is the heavenly city, there is no temple because Jesus himself is it, right? It's what he said on earth. Destroy this temple three days. I will raise this temple. He's talking about his body. Now, where it gets to the next phase of this is all who are in Christ then on earth are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God. The temple is where God's spirit is said to reside in the presence of his people. Look at, look at what First Corinthians says. Do you not know, this is Paul writing to a church, do you not know that you, a church, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You are a temple. You are not a temple. You are God's temple. And it, it could, it, it should be, you are the temple of God is what it literally says there. And God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Look at what he goes on to say to the Corinthians in, a, in another letter. For we, and he's talking about Christians here, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He actually quotes a passage in uh, in Exodus that God is making the promise about dwelling in them when he's giving the description of how they're to build the tabernacle. So he's saying, oh, by the way, that passage when in Exodus, when God says, I'm going to dwell in the midst of the people, therefore take up an offering, gather these things. Here, Moses, I'm going to show you my blueprints, make this place because I'm going to dwell there. Paul is saying, oh, yeah, that passage, that's you. You guys. Are you blown away by this at all? This blows me away at all. Uh, I mean, this is really uh, blowing me away. It blows me away every time I think about these things. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Talking to Gentiles who've now come to faith in Christ. He goes, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone. That's the foundation stone that was laid on which you build the rest of the building, right? He's the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. You, church, are the dwelling place of God. You are the temple of God. Ephesians chapter 2. We, we could keep going. Here's 1 Peter chapter 2. As you, writing to a group of Christians, as you come to him, the stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Spiritual house is Peter's term for what Paul calls the temple of God, right? And as we saw last week through Hebrews, the, the real structure, the physical, literal structure on earth, that's a copy and a shadow. The real one is in heaven where Christ is, he says. And if there is a physical one on earth, it's the church. It's the church. So the answer to the question, 
What is he measuring? The temple of God. Everywhere in the New Testament, the temple of God is referring to the church. He's saying, go, you're going to measure the church. You're going to measure the altar and the worshipers there. So what does the altar mean? Well, the altar then is, the, the word there is for a place of sacrifice. And so this is Christians at worship. Sacrificing offerings on the altar. I would say, what are they sacrificing? They're sacrificing themselves. You're giving over of yourself. You're offering yourselves as a living sacrifice, as the passage Dennis Dennis read in Romans chapter 12. Back to the Peter one. Hey, you're these stones, living stones rejected by men. You yourselves are living stones being built up into a spiritual house to be a priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Well, then what is the outer court? What is the what does the outer court mean? Well, the outer court that gets trampled by the nations. uh, One commentator says this. The outer court is the physical expression of the true spiritual Israel, which is susceptible to harm. The outer portion that is trampled, it then is conveys the physical persecution that will happen at the godly nations against the church. Because remember, the church is the temple. It is the priesthood, and they're offering themselves as a sacrifice. And doesn't that fit the theme of Revelation? Really? Faithfulness to Jesus, who we learn in chapter 1, is the faithful witness. Ah, he's our example in that. We are to be a faithful witness. And so I'll put it this way. The church is the dwelling place of God on earth who offer themselves as living sacrifices, even if it means physical persecution, at the hands of the godless nations who rage against Christ. But they will be protected. This is the the key to the measuring. Okay. So that means you. The answer to the question then is you. And this is related to what we see in the second part of this vision which uh, is the second question that we have. Who are the two witnesses then? And let me just read it, and then um, let's read through the rest of those verses, verses 3 through 13. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically or spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. We'll stop. We'll stop there. 
So uh, normally, this is where it gets kind of a little tricky here. Oh, boy. Um, I just looked at the time. Uh, this is where it gets a, a, a little bit tricky. Because what, what is typical of this type of apocalyptic writing is you have this kind of mashup of a whole bunch of images all being thrown together. And um, it happens everywhere in Revelation. It is happening. Uh, it's a ma- You know what they mean like a mashup. You take two different songs and you kind of morph them together into one new kind of artistic piece. This is a mashup of unbelievable proportions. He is pulling this kind of imagery from Exodus and something from, Levi- uh, from, um, from Ezekiel. And he's pulling something from Zechariah. And he's pulling something from uh, First Kings. And he's pulling something from Second Kings. And he's mer- morphing them all together. And you have this overload of these images. So I'm going to try and unpack them. And normally how I do that is we go through each verse and I explain it. And then I summarize it at the end. I'm going to reverse it. I'm going to give you the summary and then you're going to go, okay, I don't think I understand that that's what that means, but then we're going to go back and unpack it. Okay, so, uh, so track with me here. This is what this passage means, according, uh, according to me. <laughs> you know, if you disagree, that's fine. Um, the two witnesses represent the witnessing church, the saints, commissioned by Jesus' authority, empowered by the Spirit, who proclaim the message from God and testify to the gospel of the grace of God, calling all people to repent. Their ministry resembles the servants of Moses and of Elijah. Satan will make war on them, even bringing physical harm, perhaps death to them. The world under Satan's power will rejoice at their demise. Their message, though good news, will be offensive to those who reject it but their defeat will be overcome by the resurrection. God will protect them spiritually and God will protect them physically too, not by preventing physical harm or death, but by overcoming it through their resurrection. This is the image, the parable that this is conveying. And so allow me to China quickly over to unpack, uh, unpack this for you. I hope that there's a lot of content for the kids lesson because Uh, I've got a ways to go. Um, The two witnesses represent the witnessing church. Witnesses, uses the term witnesses. Martyreo means to to testify, to bear witness. They're also called prophets. They're they're prophesying in verse 3. They're speaking the word of God. Why to? He he uses this this interesting thing here. He goes in verse 4. He says in there, there are also the two olive trees and the two lampstands. So you're right away going, okay, these two witnesses are two olive trees and they're two lampstands. This is all symbolical, right? Okay. And so um, here he's drawing from Zechariah chapter three and four. I wish we had time to go and unpack that. We just don't. But in Zechariah chapter three, um, you have this, they're rebuilding the temple after it has been destroyed uh, after the Babylonian exile, they're brought back and they're rebuilding it under Zerubbabel, right? And so you have Joshua, the high priest, and he's clothed in like these dirty clothes. And the Lord says, take those filthy clothes off. And I'm going to give him uh, clean garments. And, you know, meaning I'm going to restore this priesthood. And then you have Zerubbabel, who is kind of the ruler, kind of a kingly figure. He's not actually a king, but he's a ruling figure. So you have like priesthood and you have kind of kingly things being restored. And as 
Zechariah gets this vision. He sees these two olive trees and he calls them the two anointed ones. And this is kind of saying this is this is who these two guys are. So he's drawing this this from them. Why the two witnesses? Well, remember Deuteronomy chapter 19, Deuteronomy 17 on the evidence of two witnesses uh, or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Right. So uh, the church is a witnessing church. And why is two pictured here? Well, let's just say that's legal. It's authoritative. Right? From Deuteronomy. Why did they bring two witnesses who say, yeah, I heard Jesus say that he said, I'll destroy this temple. Right? To make it legal. Okay, next, the saints. So let's, interp- let's let scripture interpret scripture. What happens in verse 11? You have the beast from the bottomless pit coming out and making war on them, the two witnesses, right? And conquering them and kill them. You have almost the exact same description in a different vision in chapter 13, verse 7. Also, it was allowed, the it, there's the beast. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Same sentence in the one, it's the same beast. In one, it's the two witnesses. In the next one, it's the saints. So the two witnesses represent the witnessing church. It's the saints commissioned by Jesus authority. Notice in verse three says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. I will grant the authority. I am giving it to them. This is very reminiscent of the type of language that Jesus used when he's commissioning his disciples. Right. We've heard of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We, we sometimes miss the first verse, the first thing Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. In Luke's version of this account, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit empowerment is also seen in verse four. You say these two olive trees are the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This goes from Zechariah chapter four, um, where he's shown this lampstand in there. It's just one lampstand, but it's two olive trees and the olive trees apparently fueling this lamp that's burning. And then he, he says, you know, what does this mean? What does this mean? And the Lord says, not, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So you have all of those images, lampstand, olive trees, witnesses. This is a spirit empowered witnesses in the world who proclaim the message from God and testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Right. They carry this message From God, and this message entails calling all people to repent. Notice what what the two witnesses are wearing. They're clothed in sackcloth. So all through the Old Testament and the New Testament too, it symbolizes repentance. And here I don't think it's their own repentance. Of course, they are repentant. I don't think it's their own repentance. I think it conveys the implication of their message. That the message of the gospel is a calling of those who hear the gospel to repent of their rebellion against God and to be reconciled to God. It's being clothed in sackcloth. 
Their ministry resembles the servants of Moses and Elijah. Some people are reading this and they're thinking, well, these two, these are going to be two people who are going to come in the future. And wow, they're going to have fire pouring out of their mouths and consuming people. Like, I, when, when is that going to happen and when I'm going to see this? Well, if you look closely at what he's saying there, those are all descriptions of Elijah's ministry. Remember Elijah, one of the, the preeminent prophet of the Old Testament. You know, the king of Samaria comes, he sends a captain and 50 men to go see him. And uh, Elijah calls down fire and it, boom, <laughs> wipes him out. And then, so the king sends another captain and another 50 men. And Elijah says the word, boom, fire from heaven comes down to devour them, right? You're supposed to think, is, oh, this is like Elijah. They're prophesying and their power comes from heaven. Right? That... Fire coming out of their mouths is kind of saying, uh, I, uh, Elijah spoke and fire came. That's the connection of the fire in the mouth. Okay. You also have um, a similar thing happen with um, the, 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 uh, um, with, uh, with Moses too. I could go more on Elijah, but you get the idea. And you also have the servants in the ministry, Moses. They have, verse 6, they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. That's Exodus 7 through 10, right? By the way, when Jesus goes up on the mountain of transfiguration and he takes Peter, James, and John and they go and see the real Jesus, like they're transfigured, who, who else is up there with him? Moses and Elijah. They're, they're recognizing, hey, Jesus is the one. Okay, you, you get it. So this is how this is how the gospel works in our commissioning, right? This is not our power; it's not our eloquence. Paul says our gospel came to you not only in word but in power, and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. To the Corinthians, he says, "For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God." So this is this is a, a parable. And they're going to harm. Uh, Satan will make war on them, even bringing physical harm, perhaps death to them. Remember what Jesus said about his witnesses and his disciples he says, hey, the world's going to hate you, but know that it hated me first. Remember what he said to Paul he said. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What, who was Paul persecuting? He was persecuting Christians who were sharing the message about Jesus. And Jesus shows up and he goes, oh, you, you may have killed those earthly people, but you're persecuting me because I sent them. And Satan then consequently will make a war on them, even bringing physical harm and even Death, verse 7 and 8. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And I would say that the world, under Satan's power, will rejoice at their demise. Let me focus on the world under Satan's power part there too. Notice he mentions four cities there. He says the great city, he says Sodom, he says Egypt, and then he says the, where their Lord was crucified, right? He doesn't use the word 
Jerusalem, but you get where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem, right? Okay. Um, are we to take that as the literal physical city of Jerusalem that just has other names? Or are we to take this symbolic of all four of those symbolically? And uh, I would say there's two reasons to do so. Why should we take it symbolically? One, John told you to. I'm reading the Bible literally. What does it literally say? Read this symbolically, which symbolically is called those things. Okay. And then look at what those four cities represent biblically. Right. The great city, as we'll see later in Revelation, is referring to Babylon, a city of the enemy of God's people. Sodom, enemy of God's people, persecuting God's people. Egypt, enemy of God's people, persecuting God's people. Jerusalem, enemy of God's people, persecuting God's people. Right? What does Jesus say about Jerusalem in the final week? It says to those who are the leaders of Jerusalem, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of the pro uh, those who murder the prophets. He later returns and looks at the city of Jerusalem and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. If you want to read a parable of what Jesus really thinks about that earthly Jerusalem, read Matthew 21, 33 through 41. So I think that these these are cities. He's just throwing these cities together and he's saying, what does this see, these cities represent? This is the world systems set against God, sent against the Lord and his anointed. You'll see that anywhere. I would have a hard time thinking that somebody in China right now doesn't identify Sodom, Egypt, the place where the Lord was crucified, and that great city as what the communist regime is doing to them now. It's real. This is live. This isn't something that's happening in a distant future after we're swept away in the sweet by and by. This is real. The world under Satan's power will rejoice at their demise. For three and a half days, verse 9, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Don't be tempted to write verse 10 on your Christmas cards this year. Right? <laughs> this is not about Christmas. <laughs> I, I actually heard that that is actually taken and was on a Christmas card. They rejoiced over them and made merry and exchanged presents. They were exchanging presents and making joy because they had wiped out the witnesses to God on earth. That's what, they're, that's what they were saying, right? So don't put it on a Christmas card. <laughs> no proof testing. Their message, though good news, will be offensive to those who reject it. Verse, the rest of verse 10. Because those two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. Yes. That's what the, the witnessing church does. It is a torment to those who set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed. I love what Pastor Wang Yi said. It's like, uh, or some paraphrase of it. Yeah, they're afraid of us because we have no fear of them. The Communist Party is cracking down on Christians. Why? Because their message is powerful and it is a direct 
threat to them and their authorities and their kingdom. Paul said, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Or as he says in 2 Corinthians, uh, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us, this persecuted church, through... uh, uh, through in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Okay, so he's saying what well, we are, we're a fragrance. But have you ever noticed that not all fragrances are universally liked by everyone, right? My wife loves candles, I think, smell horrible, <laughs> horrible. I banish them to her, to her sewing room basement area because I can't do it. I can't do it. He, this is what he says. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life to to some. We smell like death to others. We smell like life, right? The good news is offensive. The gospel is offensive because it calls people to repent. The gospel is offensive because it. It tells people you're going the wrong way and you need to change. But their defeat will be overcome by their resurrection. And this is, I think, the beautiful part. Look at verses 11 and 12. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Again, I think that there's a picture here. He's drawing on a little bit from Uh, Ezekiel chapter uh, 36 and 37, the valley of the dry bones, the dry bones, and then they get sinews and then they get flesh and then they stand on their feet. I think that's that's happening here. Picture of resurrection from dead to life. They stood on their feet and then a great fear fell on all those who saw them. And when they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. So God will protect them. And this is the key point. This is so important. God, because you think of like, there's so many scripture passages that talk about God's protection over his people. And yet we still die physically. How do I put those two together? And I've heard for often, most of my life, I kind of made a partition between the spiritual and the physical, right? I go, well, he'll protect us spiritually, even if we suffer physically. Because that seemed to be making the best evidence of the two. Until I start to look at what he's saying here and what he's saying elsewhere. You're not factoring in the resurrection. Your physical body being resurrected from the dead. You will be protected physically too. Because your physical body, no matter what it suffers, will be given back to you in glorious Status, You will be given a glorified body. And again, I've said this before. For those of you who are young, you're like, eh. For those of us who are old and creak and ache and uh, experiencing difficulties and pains and hardships and diseases, and that, that means a lot. Amen. God... <laughs> 
God will protect them, these two witnesses, spiritually, and God will protect them physically, too. By per, not by preventing physical harm, not by preventing death, but by overcoming it through resurrection. Then they heard the voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. So, friends, this is what I think. It, this, let me back through here and do these again. These two witnesses represent the witnessing church. The saints commissioned by Jesus' authority, empowered by the Spirit, who proclaim the message from God and testify, testify to the gospel of the grace of God, calling all people to repent. Their ministry resembles the servants of Moses and Elijah. Satan will make war on them, even bringing physical harm, perhaps even death to them. God, under Satan's power, will rejoice at their demise. Their message, though good news, will be offensive to those who reject it, but their defeat will be overcome by their resurrection. God will protect them spiritually, and God will protect them physically too, not by preventing physical harm or death, but by overcoming it through their resurrection. Amen and amen. So the two questions, what is the temple of God? We are. Who are the two witnesses? We are. We are the saints called of God, redeemed by Christ and his blood. And we have been sent out with Jesus authority, his own authority that he received from the father. He gives to us to go and to share his word. And we are empowered by the spirit. We are to witness, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, which entails calling people to repent. And we will be a torment to the world for it. We are to uh, we are a pleasing aroma to those who hear that message and receive it. But we will be a stench and a torment to those who reject it. And the word that we give will uh, if they reject, turns into a fire that will actually consume them eventually. We are the enemy of Satan and he is ours. And we will be the recipients of his attacks. And we may be killed for our testimony, but we are protected. We are measured. We are sealed. Even though we suffer physically, we will be protected because we will be raised again one day. Pastor Wang Yi gets this. I pray that we We'll get this too. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you take your word and put it into our hearts and into our lives. Help us see that these, these things are us. That we are the presence, your presence on this earth. And that we are called to witness and testify to this world. Help us to do so by your spirit. And it's in the name of Christ we pray and all God's people said, amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, if you'd stand, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.